everyone. Hello, everyone. I'm Jeanette. And I'm Francis. Here for so many wrong notes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Francis. Uh huh. And you know I'm serious because I call you Francis now. Oh yeah. Who doesn't like big butts? <laughs> like who? Who doesn't? Yeah. I don't know. And then <laughs> here's something that I hear a lot. Okay. Don't you want to be a success in this world? I usually answer no, and I light my cigarette and I blow smoke in their face, and I call them an asshole in my mind. Uh, I think that is a tremendous reaction to give. I would like it even more if you said, I light a cigarette with my butt. (laughs) Well, okay. Yeah, these are all examples of rhetorical questions. And that's because the topic of today's conversation is about rhetoric. And basically, I am going to ask Francis a lot of questions about rhetoric in music, because that's a term I've never really encountered in my study. And I know that's something that Francis actually encounters a lot, because he does... What is your what is your field of expertise, Francis? Oh, my field of sort of pseudo-expertise is historical performance. Right. And rhetoric has sort of become the new buzzword in the field, I think. Oh, it's a new buzzword. Is, yeah. I always thought like it was an everybody. old buzzword. Well, it started sort of in the 80s with the authenticity debate. Ooh, I don't even know what that is. Oh, okay. So, here's here's the authenticity debate in a nutshell. So serious. Yes. It is very serious because people like really argued hard about it. Okay. So when HP or early music came to the forefront, I think people were trying to discover sort of like a lost tradition. Right. Mm. They were thinking that music pre nineteenth century was being performed in a way that was completely uh, different from what the tradition was. Okay. So the tradition kind of died out. And the original like pioneers of HP were trying to rediscover that tradition. And they went back to the, you know, sources of the time, treatises, original like manuscripts and publications of the time. And of course, the historical instruments of the time. This was when it was becoming trendy to do it. People have been thinking about it for like a hundred years. Like it started sort of like, people could even argue that historical performance kind of started when Mendelssohn conducted the St. Matthew's Passion. But, you know, Mendelssohn made it Mendelssohn, right? Huge orchestra, huge choir, using instruments of of their time instead of that time. And so it really kind of became a big trendy thing in the 80s when tons of recordings were being made and they were making tons of money. They and were? what they did, yeah, in the 80s like early music was a hot ticket. They were like top 10 on the Yeah, in the in the Billboard classical charts, they were like really selling. That's awesome. Yeah, and the record companies would called it on authentic instruments or on an authentic performance authentic being a synonym for historical accuracy right okay but here's 
what happened. The term authentic offended everybody else in the classical community saying, like, wait, does that mean that what I'm doing, if I'm, let's say, Pinkas Zuckerman, because Pinkas Zuckerman really criticized HP, am I not authentic because I don't play this instrument? They could have the used a less divisive term because authentic you take personally i'm an authentic or not authentic person exactly and that was the debate and this is what people would completely talk about right okay and what happened was um people decided that yeah authentic was the wrong term to use i see authentic is the wrong term to use because yeah any performance can be authentic like authentic to yourself or whatever kind of method that you're trying to use. So this is why HP doesn't use authentic in that way anymore. It's sort of become a taboo. So what distinguishes us then? Is it just that we play historical instruments that makes us different? Right. And I think around the 90s like the research kind of i mean people were aware of this even before but i would say that around the 90s people were going okay we can't call ourselves authentic not that most performers were calling themselves authentic it was mostly record companies doing it oh so, so that was created by the marketing to say yeah authentic. a lot of that was created by marketing if if you like there's a book called inside early music Oh. which interviews all these like really great performers in the movement uh-huh and none of them really call themselves authentic and who is that, that book by in case anyone wants to pick it up it's by a guy named sherman i forget his first name okay inside early music um and they don't really call themselves authentic right but i don't think i've heard that really i don't think i've heard that i've heard historical or period instruments well, I mean, that's because I think you became aware as that debate was waning, you know? Yeah, I became that, aware pretty late, so... Yeah. And so this is why people... And even I cringe when some people still call it authentic performance, I go. Uh, there's a great writer called Richard Taruskin who wrote a whole book on this. It's a collection of essays. I know Taruskin. Yeah. Taruskin is great. <laughs> and he just he just blasts that authentic word like he hates it because of his invidious antonym he calls it yeah he blasts it with as much turgid language as what birthed that word probably yeah anyway during this time people people finally sort of rediscover the relationship that they really stressed back then in the 18th century between music and speech and speech in a formal way where you're using it to convince and of course everybody who was anybody whereas they were growing up in school the subject that they really studied was rhetoric 18th century and before everybody was obsessed with rhetoric in terms of speech and written writing and they would compare it to musical performance so what is rhetoric and so rhetoric is basically the the art of speaking well mm -hmm. it's the art to convince to move your listeners 
and so if you apply it to music it's the art of moving your listeners emotions with how you perform right <clears throat> which is a really large subject right it's a huge subject and i'm not i'm not an expert on it in any way but it's something that i think has really changed the way i approach how to play music okay well that's something i wanted to kind of go into a bit more because uh when you say the art of rhetoric in music is to convince or move people emotionally i think to myself that's the whole point of music right so why is it mm -hmm. something that you guys talk about more than us by a large margin well, yeah in all honesty i don't know i think i can speak generally in that if you think about a work by let's say tchaikovsky mm -hmm. the emotions are personal they're tchaikovsky's emotions that he's trying to express and we as the performers are sort of like the conduit to tchaikovsky's emotions. oh yes yes, yes. so like the yes. great work kind of thing yeah um so it's sort of like, I forget who calls it this, but someone calls it a biography in notes. It's a personal kind of expression, right? I like that. Yeah. A noted biography. Yeah. As opposed to the more kind of earlier type of rhetoric is a communal mm. kind of emotion. So if you're giving a speech, let's say if you're, you know, an ancient Roman senator trying to convince people to go to war, you're going to apply communal emotions. Okay. And that's sort of what 18th century and earlier and 17th century music is trying to do. It's not, it's not me, Bach, J.S. Bach, mm -hmm. emoting my own personal emotions. It's, there's the emotion of sad. And Which is understood we, by all. Yeah, it's all understood by all. Rather than like a Tchaikovsky, oh, my life is shit and I'm expressing that. You know what I mean? Yes, I understand what you mean. I still think like if any piece of work is performed in public, you're wanting to express an emotion everyone can relate to. And see, that's the rub. Yeah, oh, maybe, here's the rub, okay. And maybe we can talk more about that at, near the end. But you're right. Everything is rhetoric. Any convincing performance is rhetorical. Right. At least that sounds like it. I mean, you're just defining what we do. Exactly. Exactly. And so that, I think, is now the big question for the HP movement. Okay. If everything is rhetoric, then what the hell sets us apart? But the thing about rhetoric that I think kind of fixed the authenticity debate okay. is... People thought of early music as being stuffy and academic. But when we are talking about rhetoric, we're talking about moving people, right? And creating a convincing performance. Right. So if we create a convincing performance now that convinces people now, we're still being historical because the treatises say to be rhetorical. You know what I mean? <laughs> So it kind of killed two birds with one stone. It kind of you just did it with a rhetorical debates. question. What was that? Did you do that on purpose? You just did that with a rhetorical question. Oh no, I didn't. I didn't even realize I asked a rhetorical See? question. See, <laughs> that's awesome. 
awesome. Yeah. So natural. Um, okay. But anyway, <laughs> it killed the two birds. Yeah. But that's a big question. That's something that I'm thinking about. Is that you're right? Everything is rhetorical. From from an HP performance to a performance by Yo-Yo Ma to Aretha Franklin is rhetorical. You know. Right. Everything is rhetorical. Actually, so, everything, including jingles from TV commercials and stuff like that. I mean, like, exactly. Because I, I was naturally thinking about speeches and modern day applications of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you look at speeches; they use repetition. Everything uses repetition to implant something or to yeah. convince or have people remember something. Uh-huh. So, I mean, when you use such a large definition as this is a tool used to move people and influence people that I think covers everything you do in front of another person. You're right. And that's the big problem, I think. That's the new kind of philosophical issue that I think HP needs to deal with. Right. Well, I guess I'm curious about, has the difference been attributed to the history of how rhetoric came about in discussion with music uh, in terms of music would amplify like text that was set to music and therefore a lot of historical pieces were done with that very consciously and therefore you have more right to the word in a way yeah and there were treatises written like in the 17th century where they would equate figures of speech rhetorical figures and like apply them to musical figures like so, directly? You know, like they would just be like, this is a question. I'm using this in. It's more like, oh, this is like a sigh or there's oh, this. Right. And I'm not, again, I'm not a huge expert on this, but I did see a, like pages, like maybe two pages of like a list of figures cool. and the musical equivalent of it. Can um, you give us a, a few way, examples it, of that? Like what so, would a sigh be illustrated musically? A sigh would be illustrated musically, maybe something falling with a slur over it. Right. And um, wasn't it you said that chromatic descending line is... Chromatic descending line is usually bad. <laughs> like a specific <laughs> bad or like a lament or what? Yeah, it's like usually associated with a lament. It was basically what it is, is... And we have it now, is that regardless of whether or not people agreed on the terms, because people didn't agree on the terms back then there was like a series of tropes is the best word for it Mm -hmm. like and we have them now in in movies or anything right are you gonna do the sexy saxophone bit i think i will do the sexy saxophone all right all right what do you mean by tropes in (laughs) today's time well if you were watching like a film noir and suddenly we had a sexy saxophone right yeah yeah we know exactly what's coming and what's usually coming is this kind of beautiful woman kind of dangerous we don't know she's mysterious but she's pretty sexy just a rabbit and so we know exactly what to expect or even star wars is a great example Mm. how star wars even begins it tells you exactly what kind of movie this will be Right. So it's just like these little tropes that you instantly recognize. Um, we recognize them now in modern day. And it's just a matter of sort of recognizing what the old tropes were. And it was a method of communicating something. Right. 
It's a language. The sexy, yeah, the sexy saxophone communicates something really easily and really quickly in a film noir. Right. It's very as, useful. Uh, just like a descending tetrachord, a descending chromatic line in a bass. Oh, lament. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. I know what this piece is. It's very So that efficient, you understand actually. something. Yeah, you understand something instantly. Right. And that's sort of you know, that's that's rhetoric right. in a way. Wait, so rhetoric in music didn't originate, did it, or did, like, tell me if this is a misconception. Did it originate from illustrating text or poetry or was it? Uh, yeah, I think that had a big part of it. Okay. That had a big part to do with it. It's sort of like what made Baroque music Baroque, right? They wanted to write music that was closer to speech, which is what created the whole... Okay, go on with that. So instead of the polyphony you know in the renaissance which is sort of like okay let's start this way okay music sort of in the middle ages and up through the renaissance was really thought about as a science it was sort of like equivalent to how the planets move and how the stars move in the sky right and that's what all the counterpoint is sort of like so this is it moves this way and it was this very theoretical thing not to say that there wasn't practical music but that was the lowest level of music the highest level of music is this kind of scientific sort of how the universe works and how that's revealed through music that's sort of the old renaissance way of thinking about it i'm a little confused on that so like as in music was untouchable, but you just studied it as if you were analyzing what already existed? Or Well, they were saying that music already existed in the universe. So in a way, it wasn't a human-created thing. Ah, okay. Like okay. sort of from the tones, the harmonic tones and the... Yeah, the harmonic tones and it's just... And that kind of Renaissance medieval history uh, theory of music is really kind of, you know, out there and it's kind of hard to understand. It's like, <laughs> As evidenced by my clear, like... So, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of confusing, but really it, music wasn't something to be listened to. Okay. <laughs> it was music for the eye or for the mind. Still not getting any it, clarity. <laughs> because it reveals how the universe works. This is pseudoscience. You need to remember this. Okay. So I think you're thinking too rationally. I they guess thought, so. They thought music was part of the universe. And so studying music was sort of studying like astronomy. Like the principles of life itself. Yeah. Okay. Things like how music moves, right, in terms of, let's say, even counterpoint, is like a universal law that is like the equivalent to how um, the planets move, you know? Right. Well, the only thing I'm getting in terms of that I can make sense out of is that you have the harmonic series, which are just from vibrations that are natural, right? Yeah. But yeah. I all the rules of counterpoint somebody had to come up with them right like where did it where did it get this like truth from well i mean a lot of this truth isn't really truth right right it's a lot of it's a lot of like bs so somebody frankly. had to come up with them but say that it was the truth or like a group of people 
Because somebody had to come up with the BS about it, right? Yeah, and I'm sure some somebody thought of it. And a- again, I'm not an expert on the history of this. I'm trying to just point out generally what music was. Anyway, that's what music was. Music was this academic thing. And people really didn't care about listening to it in a way. It's sort of like music for the mind instead of for the ear. And the actual lowest form of music was... Enjoyment? No, actual music, like the music that you hear. (laughs) That was the lowest form of music. So there's like music of the body, how music affects how your blood flows to your body. You know, it's all this kind of stuff. This is bonkers. Yeah, yeah, it is bonkers, but that's how they thought of it. Okay. And then something kind of shifted, sort of... Again, this is kind of an arbitrary date, but like around 1600, it's like, oh, wait, we want to talk about music, like what we hear. And we want music to really reflect speech. We want... Mm. And you have to also remember that the primary form of music making was singing. Right. So there's a clear correlation there. Yeah, exactly. And people wanted a deeper connection to the words. And so, you know, these early guys, Caccini and like... Oh, God. Caccini is like the main example. So Caccini is not an Italian restaurant in Hell's Kitchen. It is, it is not <laughs> an Italian restaurant. Anyway, it, it's like... It's a way of breaking away from this kind of polyphonic writing to something that is more speech-like. That is expressive, how people that know is how to express. expressive. Okay. At least expressive to them, like in the 1600s. This came out of Italy, right? Um, I think, yes, it's, it's safe to say that it, it, it was kind of an Italian thing. Um, but it did spread across the continent and... Um, and what that created was sort of like the idea of a voice, a single voice that's then supported by something like chords, which is how like basso continuo came into being. So it gives the singer a little bit more freedom to express their text. Right. Um, you know what I was thinking about? when you were talking was the origins of church music uh-huh well like why why did church service start to have music why did it why did they need music to amplify the worship why is worship best expressed in singing yeah because i was just I thinking think... about like the emotive power of it like maybe that's what they were harnessing oh i mean they knew that music did have this emotive meditative trance like power the church knew this I mean, partly it's... You need to remember that instead of the movies, people went to church. Right. Yeah, okay. So this is where you got your high and your your kicks. Yeah, right. So it's not only a worshipful kind of religious experience, but it's also like the only time probably where you could hear and see something that was separate from ordinary life. Right. And the church knew that, that music had this immense power. So the church knew this, but what you're talking about in terms of the scholarship and the treatises, those were non-church 
people writing those. There, yeah, I mean, some of them did work for churches, but it was just, it was like. These are scholars. They're separate. Yeah, yeah, it's like separate, and it's also like, you know, polyphonic music, being this kind of weird esoteric thing, not even weird, but like, you know, who can understand it? Because it's so uh, celestial. Yeah. And let's just have more direct expression so that people understand the text. Okay, so it started from text-based. So how, when did it translate to instrumental music? Pretty shortly after that, you know? So we have this thing like Caccini, um, it's called Monody, where we have one single voice line with accompaniment. Um, and depending on what the text is saying, it's sort of like almost schizophrenic music, right? We start out really languid, and then suddenly the text is angry, and then it's this kind of agitated thing. Okay. Then becomes languid, you know. So very illustrative. Uh, yeah, very illustrative. And it's so easy to do that, and then the, to translate it to, like, violin, you know? Suddenly, violins and cornetti have this kind of music. Right, right. Because it's the most voice-like instrument. Yeah. And so then, like, it stood on its own as its emotive... Yeah, it's kind of stood on its own. And a lot of it refers back to what the original voice kind of rep was. So that you, as a listener, would understand what what something was about, even if it was instrumental. And so this next question is just for you i mean you said that it has affected and influenced your playing a lot just the study of rhetoric mm-hmm. and history so um can you walk us through that just a little bit like how it really helped you yeah the first thing that really helped me was it kind of made me analyze music differently totally i'm sure in a way of first how is this piece constructed Because I think of it as a script. Right. And I'm trying to track how something is being said and how it's organized. So that was the one big thing, which is like different, I think, from how I used to look at it. Like if I were to play a Beethoven sonata, I would go, oh, yeah, sonata form. Here's the first theme. Here's the second theme. Right. But now it's like, oh, okay, what is this first theme? Okay. And how does he get us? to the second theme and how he gets us to the second theme what what effect is he going for right and then this development okay it's a development fine weird but it's like okay what processes is he using does that make sense oh totally i mean i just wish we thought about that way now because you're getting to intent you're getting to meaning like the interpretive actual tools that one needs to make music come alive like you're coming exactly the specific things of emotions that you want to convey i mean who analyzes things like this is first theme or second theme that's like talking about music as if it was in academic science (laughs) but i just wanted to point out to listeners that because they can't see you immediately when franny started talking about how he now analyzes music he got all furtive and intense it started like darting his head back and forth he was super excited (laughs) 
It was just really funny. Your body language really conveyed a lot of excitement. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's what I get excited about, Jeanette. Well, yes! You look like a turtle. I'm a, I'm a <laughs> dork. But anyway, you suddenly find a lot of intent. Right. Instead of just kind of geography, like labeling. Yeah. Like roots on a map. It's like first theme is like your first rest stop and then your second theme is like your second rest stop. It just like it it ties everything together. Which means in preparation you really understand the piece better. I really am I appalled that like this is not how music is really taught to students. Yeah, I know, it's pretty bad. Um yeah. anyways, sorry. Yeah, no 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 no. I agree with you completely. It's just... I mean, I'm trying to remember, like, the first lesson I had where a teacher actually did not talk about analysis from that point of view, but actually was going into reasons why. Yeah. And, like, composer's intent. Exactly. Ultimately, it's not even a composer's intent thing. It's, like, what the piece does. Right. And actually, we can look at the same Beethoven sonata and come to two different conclusions. We should come to two different yeah, conclusions. Yeah, we should, too. We should. And that's great. As opposed to, I think the big issue is the idea of truth, like authenticity, truth. Yeah, it, it, that sort of kind of clicks into like um, conservatory theory classes. Like this is how things are. Well, yeah, because you get a graded paper, which is exactly. But I mean, more kind of recent theory teaching is really more about how you hear it, right? Mm-hmm. We can look at a Beethoven sonata and agree that it's in C-sharp minor. It's in cut time. Which means this and this and this. It means this and this and this. It has this motive. Ba-ba-ba. Under a triplet. (laughs) (laughs) Accompaniment, right? What was that again? I don't recognize that. Yeah, do you not know that one? You should check it out. The hunting call sonata. Yeah. But we we could come to like two completely different conclusions as to how the pieces how the piece functions. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, I hear it one way, you hear it another way. And also, I mean, it more generally the case I think is that it will be around the same ballpark area, but it will not be the same. Exactly. My question for you is, you know, studying music where the rhetoric was very consciously put into the music. Um, do you find that interpretations are more ver- less varied than uh, contemporary pieces, or what? What do you? Think? No, it's even more varied. Even more varied. Okay. That's the thing. It can become more personal. There's no one way to perform something, and I'm actually kind of using Beethoven as an example because I still think it applies to Beethoven. It's kind of rhetorical. Let's take the last movement of the Moonlight Sonata, right? right okay what is the effect of that little thing it's like should we do it again (laughs) (laughs) why am i always ending after you i must be adding a beat in there i don't know i think i'm skipping a beat in there but i can think of that motive as like a frightening motive right and then really have the bah, bah! yeah <laughs> like or the... you could be like bubbling with excitement and like yeah or yeah exactly there's like tons of ways to to think about hooray it. yeah or 
Ole. <laughs> In terms of like rubato, you can have rhetorical pauses. For example, mm. I'm working on the Italian concerto right now, which Ooh. pianists love to play, which is like one of the hardest pieces I've ever played on harpsichord. Really? Yeah, I think partly it's because when I was like a baby, I loved the Italian concerto. That was like my piano piece. Who does it? Who doesn't love the Italian concerto? But when I started playing harpsichord, I ha- I didn't touch it, and I have to perform the Italian concerto on harpsichord in April. So I'm starting to look at it, and it's so hard. Is it like a, um, like a psychological block you got? It's not even like a. I think partly it's a psychological block. Yes. Partly from talking to other people, it's just a hard piece. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I haven't played it. I've sight-rated many times with the pressure off. You also have to remember that on the harpsichord, there's the added element of changing keyboards, right? The fortes and the pianos. Oh, okay. Yeah, don't necessarily mean dynamics. It tells you what the keyboard to play is. And he has some really crazy quick keyboard switches. Yeah, I imagine like, it'd take a little bit more time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of rhetorical like pauses, as I was talking about in the Italian concerto, you know, ba 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 da ba da, ba 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 da ba da da. But I actually just did that in time. But I can also do. Ba 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 da ba da. Ba 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 da ba da. Ya da 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 da. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can play with that, and it tells the story in that in a way. Well, you know it... what's interesting is like I play a lot of modern music, and yeah. I mean, there's a lot of very micromanagey rhythms. Uh-huh. Um. And there, there, there isn't the practice nowadays of like doing what you just illustrated of making a pause bigger than notated for dramatic effect. Yeah. But I found that because I have the benefit of having the composer listen and comment and uh-huh. give me feedback is that when I exaggerate certain things because I like it, they often like it. So yeah. maybe we should just be more like you guys in that if we feel like something is an expressive gesture and we want to amplify it we should just do it yeah definitely i feel like composers might yell at me right now but... well that's the problem right exactly yeah. the anxiety and actually that brings up a whole other issue i don't know if you if you want to move on from what we were talking about is that the 18th century idea of composition and performance composers were performers right and they gave performers the benefit of the doubt. They knew that performers would instinctively understand what they were trying to say. As opposed to the biography and notes, which is, no, this is my piece. And therefore, you idiot whose only job is to be my servant to actually create this piece in sound must do exactly what I wrote. Well, you know what I've found nowadays is not so much that um, composers think of themselves as lordly or unavailable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's definitely different now, but is that they don't trust the same way that composer performers of yore did. Um, yeah. Because I, I, I have talked to several people about like certain things that I've done that they've liked. And, like 
they can tell me a gesture or an intent that they want mm-hmm. and I can do it and I didn't have to and, and I would ask them why did you write the rhythm so specifically like that and they're like because not every performer understands intuitively that I want that gesture yeah so the language of rhetoric that was so universally understood in your time I think has crumbled now or at least I the trust so. in it has I mean I also feel like the, and I love composers is that we do we well of course we love composers yeah. it's just that they tend to micromanage and I think that comes out of anxiety from bad performances yeah but I feel like we need to I think if you're a composer mm-hmm. if you write something and you put it out in the world then it's sort of not yours anymore in a weird way yeah and if you're giving a premiere performance of a piece and you're working closely with the composer I think the composer has every right to want to hear the piece how they want to hear it right and that's fine and maybe the first or second or whatever any kind of collaboration that the composer has with the performer yeah we should try to do what the what the composer says but I also feel like the composer needs to be open to the fact that once they've written it and they've put it out in the world and anybody can play it it's sort of like not theirs anymore yeah, this is hitting close to home right now because Harold yeah. Meltzer is coming in about five days for oh. the performance of his piano quartet. And Harold Meltzer wrote very specific things, like uh-huh. to the T. It's so meticulous, like different dynamics in every note, very specific articulation, very careful rhythms, because he knows exactly what he wants. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obvious he does. Like the textures are very interesting, but uh-huh. um, I'm worried. <laughs> I have anxiety right now. Because it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I totally understand your anxiety. But I agree uh, with your point. And I think that some composers that are younger, uh, not so established maybe, are not so like uh-huh. you know, they're happy to have a performer take that piece in their own way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I can't speak. It's so not generalized, so I can't really speak I don't for know. people. Well, I mean, here's the other philosophical thing that... But what that brings up is the difference between, and this is from Richard Taruskin again, the difference between a text and an act. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think what sort of happened in the 19th century in terms of classical music is that the act of performance has become a reflection of the text. In a weird way, the actual printed score is what we think of as the music. Oh. And the act must reflect that printed score, the text. But really, there's a difference between the text and the act. And the act may be based on the text, but doesn't necessarily have to reflect the text in order for it to be a valid artistic expression. Yeah, that's a concept that is hard for some people who are not, you know, doing what we do to understand. It's like uh, performance is not just you know, reading the letter of the law. But it's, yeah. it's bringing it to life in your own way because that's the whole point. But Exactly. And I think we're still in this very text-centric kind of thinking. Right. So, I mean, I think initially I was confused because I still think of text as words, not as the notation of a piece. Uh, so, But you're using it as one. As one, yes, as a notation. So you can subtext for notes, but text is a better word to say. 
Mostly because I'm quoting Richard Tereskin. And also because you're thinking rhetorically. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, that's really the, the tension, the conflict between performers and composers, I think. Right. Is that composers want your act to be the text, and performers want their act to be an act. I like Does that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's what we understand, all of us, but putting it in that way does open up a whole new avenue of freedom. Exactly. Yeah. And what music colleges do and what scholars do to try to find the most um, people trying to discover a text that is closest to what the composer wanted Mm -hmm. is a very good ideal and is very valuable to us as performers because we can then understand the piece better. Well, the intent of who wrote it. Which I also hate to use the word intent. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Why? Because I feel like it's hard f- for anybody to know someone else's intent, especially artistically. Okay. There's the effect that it has, but that may not have been what the composer intended. Right. It's, uh, it's this literary concept called the intentional fallacy. Okay. And I always use this, I may intend to play a beautiful chord, but it comes out sounding like shit, right? What matters is the, Story what happened life. and not the intent, right? Right, right. And I know this is sort of like a nitpicky detail, but I just... No, I mean, it's just, it's interesting because I really like thinking about intent. Yeah, I mean, I think you're thinking about the way you think about intent is true for you though yeah no possible way and i understand how you use it i think it's totally fine i just try to avoid it (laughs) you know what i mean it's like i'm admitting that i'm putting my own motivations into something that i don't know it's because i don't know what beethoven wanted i don't know what his intent was you know right it's it's more See, this is why i should have been a lawyer (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's more just like the experiential learning, learning by trying to put yourself in somebody else's mindset. That's mm-hmm. for for me at least is is the purpose of finding out more about the composer's lifetime and what he was thinking yeah. of that period. And I mean, obviously, we all know at the heart of it is all supposition. We can't. Yeah. We can't know, but the more informed we are, the more we can try to be there ourselves. Yeah. And I think that experience uh, would be universal. It, it's sort of like emotions are universal. So if you can relate to that, what you think is the intent, you can translate it to yourself if you're having absolutely. trouble with that. No, you're right. But in, in doing that, your performance, let's just keep using Moonlight. Your performance of Moonlight. A is piece I've never played, actually. Uh, it's your performance. It's like unique to you. And I think all of us would be very pissed if anyone said it wasn't our performance yeah and i think this solves the issue because you've said it many times like i have no reason to play beethoven sonatas horowitz did it why do i have to do it well because then you don't have to be horowitz you can be Jeanette fang and you can you can make expressive performance decisions that aren't based on an already recorded tradition that's really where I think what it's coming to. That's what the historical performance movement is, in in a sort of a nutshell. In that, we 
sort of reject performance traditions that have accrued onto a piece. We look at the most faithful sources as possible to under, yeah, the primary sources to figure out what was there and what the notes may suggest without any kind of other editorial markings, right? Yeah. And then we then uh, try to understand the meaning of what we see and we translate it to sound. And that one time that we translate it to sound may be completely different from another time, but it's all based on that one text. I love it. I love how what you're saying is basically what is a historical performance term is actually very applicable and relevant to all of us as performers. Absolutely, it is. And like I alluded to earlier, then if everybody finds out about this, everybody's rhetorical, what makes historical performance different? And that, I think, is a question for another show. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well... So, Francis, what are you obsessed with? Okay, I think I've officially reached senior citizenship (laughs) with what I'm excited about. Yesterday, I came home and I discovered that Jeopardy is on Netflix. Okay, okay. (laughs) And I've been watching (laughs) Jeopardy and I love Jeopardy and I'm old. You know, what would you choose if you had the option of Price is Right or Jeopardy? Jeopardy. Okay. All right. No question. You know, I feel like in every two-host podcast, there's always one that is, like, the old guy. Yeah. The one who likes Frasier. The one who likes Peaches and Cardamom or, like, something. Wait. Peaches and Cardamom? <laughs> what's wrong with that? The one who I likes, love both like, of those things. And I also of... sort of like Frasier, so okay. <laughs> it's really just Frasier that was the accurate example to give. Uh, uh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know why I thought of Cardamom. I don't know. I don't think that was ever a recommendation. Okay. Yeah. So you are the old man of the podcast, which we already knew. Yeah, I know. But it's okay. I, I fully embrace my oldness and I like it. And Jeopardy on Netflix. Check it out. Oh, it's really good. I love Jeopardy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what are you obsessed with, Jeanette? All right. So, um, well, we're so prepared today. We're just like on the go. So mm. I've been listening to another podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. I mean, especially now that I am single, I mm-hmm. it's company, you know? So I generally like comedy podcasts, like mm-hmm. two guys who banter. And there's this podcast called The Dollop. Have you heard of it? No. It's these two guys, uh, Gareth Reynolds and Dave Anthony. And they they do stories from history, from American history specifically, like weird little stories or tales or like occurrences. And mm-hmm. one guy tells the other, uh, Dave tells Gareth it, and it's it, they're usually bizarre stories. They're not like scary true crime stories. They're more like ridiculous things that have happened that is oh isn't america great i mean actually america is terrible because of this incident that shows how stupid we are or something like that but it's like it's really entertaining and i found out a lot of stuff 
Nice. Yeah. Most recently, I found out about these badass woman, Deborah Solomon, who like pretended to be a male soldier for three years and got away with it. Oh, she's like the American Mulan. Yeah, and she was so badass. She would get, like, horrifically injured, and she wouldn't let a doctor treat her because, you know, no penis. Yeah. So she'd just, <laughs> just walk it off like a head wound or, like, a gunshot wound. She'd just dig out the whole bullet herself in the bathroom. and. Oh, it. my God. I know. She was the definition of badass. Yeah. And, I mean, like, I love it. That's great. The dollop. The dollop. And oh, I, right. they have a heavy following, so it's not like we're doing them any favors by writing any of this. <laughs> but I'll definitely check them out. All right. And... Please check us out at so many wrongnotes.com. And our Facebook page. So many wrong notes. Leave us a review or just leave us a rating because that takes less time. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please rate and review us or just give us suggestions or tell us what's going on. And if you like us, tell people about us. Yeah, it'd be awesome to hear from you. Yeah. We've been hearing from more people and uh, shout out to Scott Meek with his awesome video of somebody playing our theme song it was like this hilarious so many wrong notes I would love for that to be viral Uh, that would be great